Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm pleased to begin today by thanking fellow saloners Lauren G., Samuel G., Sam V., and regular donor Ian W., all of whom made direct financial donations to the salon during the past 30 days. Also, I'm extremely pleased to announce that since beginning the Salon 3 first run in live salon tracks in November, the number of supporters of that project has increased from 150 to almost 350 fellow saloners, and the amount of donations have gone up by almost $300 a month. And while it may seem like a dollar or two a month isn't all that much, it actually does add up to a lot for me. You see, my plan is to continue these live Monday night podcasts for as long as I can. And since I feel so good right now, well, to me, that means another 10 years or so. So when someone pledges a dollar a month on Patreon, the way I see it is that over the next 10 years, if they stay with me that long, they're making a donation of $120 for my support and comfort in my closing years of podcasting. In other words, my supporters on Patreon have become my extended family, and to them I will be forever grateful. And to continue making our Monday Night Live Salon sessions interesting, I've begun inviting a number of guests to join us. Tomorrow night is going to be Bruce Damer, at least if all goes well, because he's going to be at a dinner party with several of my other friends, and hopefully a couple of them will also be able to join us and make it a truly memorable salon. And then the following week, my guest in the live salon will be my friend Matt Palomari, who has been featured here in the salon on several occasions, uh, sharing his wisdom and stories about his extensive experiences in South American jungles. There are also quite a few other interesting people with whom I've been talking about joining us for a live salon, and uh, actually they've all told me that they'd like to join us one night. However, uh, I've kind of fallen behind in my correspondence with them, I guess and with everybody else for that matter, because uh, I've become a little preoccupied with the fact that right now I have to find a new apartment, pack, move, and unpack all in the next six weeks. So uh, a few of my administrative tasks are going to be slipping behind for a while, but I'll do my best to get a new podcast out each week. In fact, depending on how tomorrow evening's live salon goes, I may podcast that on the Salon 2 track in the next few weeks while I get resettled. And uh, by the way, if you live near Santa Barbara, then this coming Saturday, January 19th, I'll be speaking at the Entheo Medicine event. And the other speaker that evening will be Alan Badner, who is a Buddhist scholar and the author of Zigzag Zen. His talk for the evening is titled, Buddhism and Psychedelics, Two Complementary Paths to Free the Mind. And my talk is going to be about ways that we can continue to strengthen the global psychedelic community. Hope to see you there. Now, uh, for today's program, which is the second half of a conversation between Art Bell and Terrence McKenna on the Coast to Coast all-night radio program, uh, well, in this segment, Terrence takes questions from listeners who call in from all over the country. And uh, I guess for our younger saloners, I should explain that the reason that radio coverage was so widespread is because it was AM radio. And uh, for what it's worth, AM radio played a very significant role in the initial spread of rock and roll. 
I'll bet that I'm not the only old guy here in the salon who, back during the 1950s, would wait until his parents went to sleep and then sneak out to the living room and listen to the Alan Freed Show, the Moondog, as he filled the airwaves with R&B and eventually rock and roll music that our local stations wouldn't carry. In some strange way, uh, I feel that by trying to suppress this new music that we all like so well, the effect was actually the opposite of what they intended. And uh, so we all went out of our way to find it and listen to it, and that's how we found the Moondog. Now, yet today, if you want to, you can still hear the Coast to Coast radio program from 1 o'clock until 5 o'clock in the morning, Eastern Time. And uh, it can be found on over 600 stations in the United States. And, uh, of course, you're not going to be entertained by the Moondog, but it still can be extremely interesting if you're into topics that are well, a little off the beaten path as Terrence McKenna was back in March of 1998, when he and Art Bell began taking questions from listeners around the country. Let's join them now. All right, uh, back now to the the world of Terrence McKenna on the side of a volcano. By the way, uh, Terrence, just in case somebody or something does eventually push alternate control delete, um, being there on the side of a volcano, uh, you would be the first, uh, probably, in all probability, to experience uh, the moment of deletion. Well, it depends. Uh, we were talking about the Y2K problem. I'm. What I'll do is I'll shut down an hour before and come online an hour after and see if anybody's left. Uh, <laughs> so... You know, that's a great idea, actually. Um, as I may far do as living on this volcano is concerned, yes. if it's true, it's uh, it's the devil we know. Uh, it's been in constant eruption for 13 years. We tell ourselves it's all over on the other side, which it is, but of course that's 50 miles away. Mm. Uh, but it's kind of nice to have all our problems packaged uh, into one problem and to have it be a natural problem, so there's no point in us whining and grossing about it. The volcano is the volcano. So Now, I, I'm not an expert uh, on, on things volcanic, but I do think that the great danger is not the slow, constant eruption that you now experience, but rather if a lava dome were to begin to be in place and the entire volcano were to start to expand with pressure until finally the entire thing blew up, uh, creating probably a new island or new portions of an island, but uh, in the process uh, erasing Terence McKenna and everybody else. Well, you know, people have only been here a thousand years or so, and what went on in the remote past of Hawaii, I think there were very dramatic uh, yeah. geological events they had an International Geological Congress out here in Hilo a couple of years ago, and uh, there was evidence presented for these enormous underwater land slippages uh, that happen out here, Ti local tidal waves of 2,000 feet. That's right. In part of the picture. That's right. Yes, well, the Earth is a violent place. Uh, this little asteroid scare last week was a wake-up call uh, there's uh, on every level, nature is relentless in continuing to deal and redeal the deck. Uh, 
That's why every window of opportunity uh, that isn't uh, acted upon is somehow uh, an opportunity forever lost. Well, I, I'm, I, I've felt for a long time that somebody's shuffling the cards right now. Uh, anyway, listen, here we go. Let's go to the phones. Um, first time caller line, you're on the air with Terrence McKenna in Hawaii in the boondocks there. Where are you? Um, uh, in New York. New York. You're going to have to yell at us. Boy, you're not too strong. Yell at us. How's that? Better. It's better for you. I can still not hear this guy, so relay the question, Art. All right. Yell the question. Okay. Uh, well, I'd like to ask Terrence to analyze an experience of mine. Uh, first, though, I want to ask him, uh, can DMT in your brain be released by intentional means? Perhaps okay, other... well, that's a very good question, and there's not a very good answer. Uh, if DMT could be released by spontaneously or through some act of will, we might have an explanation in hand of certain kinds of paranormal phenomena. Uh, years ago when I studied uh, yoga in India and read all these yoga texts, I was uh, on the trail of the idea that using your body as a chemical factory to naturally manufacture these active uh, hallucinogens may be what yoga is about. And I still think that that's a, a reasonable hypothesis. Uh, when DMT was first discovered, people thought that it was going to shed light on schizophrenia and that surely schizophrenics must be producing large amounts of DMT in their brains. Well, it, it seemed like a good idea, but the research has never uh, supported it. Uh, the only research in the last 40 years done on DMT with human subjects was done by Rick Strassman and his team a few years ago out at the University of New Mexico, and the report on that was published by MAPS, which is uh, 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 an organization which actively works for the legalization of psychedelics, but which also publishes a very good journal. And uh, if you look that up, you can see the results, which were fascinating. For instance, uh, everybody who got the stiff dose saw elves, just like I did. So here's a scientific study that secures uh, the presence of elves on the other side of this pharmacological boundary. Well, and, but then you have some other question. Well, here's why I ask. Uh, up until last summer, I never tried any sort of mind-altering drug, uh, but at that point I tried marijuana for the first time. Uh, my experiences seem to be quite different than what everyone else, you know, typically told me about, uh, and I found that very odd. Then, you know, I listened to your first interview you had back last year with Art, and a lot, although not completely, but a lot of the, the elements you spoke about uh, seemed frighteningly uh, familiar, like uh, you spoke about like uh, like glistening orbs uh, or, or... All right, caller, uh, to uh, kind of the chase, is that what you experienced or not? Uh, yeah, that's, that's one of them, also the experience of going to another place. Well, I think what you're describing is what sometimes happens to first-timers on cannabis, which is if it's great cannabis and you're a first-timer, it hits with the impact of a much more powerful psychedelic. Uh, 
the old cannabis hand can only admire such virgin synapses, uh, uh, you know, uh, repeated exposure to cannabis socializes it dramatically and it becomes a much more manageable thing. But part of the whole drug thing and where our educational system is failing our kids is part of growing up now in postmodern society is learning what drugs you can and cannot take. And it's like learning what your sexual style is and what your political and religious beliefs are. Uh, some of us can drink. Some of us can't get near liquor. Uh, some drugs are bad for almost everybody. Some drugs are uh, pretty harmless for almost everybody. But in the case of any drug, spectacular exceptions to the rule can be found. And it's a rich combination of your psychology, your genetic heritage, your cultural style, uh, what drugs you choose to uh, inculcate into your life. And that's why having the further complication of somebody else who doesn't know what they're talking about making laws and criminalizing some drug preferences and not others is just a layer of complication that we don't need. Well, while there is some enlightenment out there, Terence, um, I read a report from the UK News uh, the other day. Then they stand by that report that the World Health Organization conducted a rather comprehensive study on cannabis and concluded that it was less harmful than either cigarettes or alcohol and that the entire report was suppressed and will not be released for reasons that most of us understand. Every study of cannabis ever done since the 1898 British High Commission report on cannabis in Bengal has reached the same conclusion. Richard Nixon appointed the study group. They reached the same conclusion, and each one of these reports is buried. And uh, people ask why. You asked me this question earlier. Uh, I really believe that it's because of the impact of cannabis on political uh, attitudes and that it makes people more difficult to propagandize and push around and manage. And so it's just a headache to the managerial class. Or if you want to take a more sinister view, uh, they would fail to be able to enslave us if cannabis were legal. Uh, the people who think we're going to legalize cannabis by making some economic argument about the virtues of hemp don't uh, are, are fooling themselves. The establishment is perfectly aware that it is the psychoactive properties of cannabis that make it such a, a hot potato. I mean, it's really an issue of chemical engineering. They want people drinking Jack Daniels and doing coffee yeah. and working like demons and lusting after German automobiles, and they don't want people kicking back and having better sex and more comfortable relationships with their uh, environments and children in those sort of easygoing style that we all associate, I think, with pot. It's even a caricature of... of cannabis culture. Uh, would you care to comment on why the government has not yet assassinated you? Me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, maybe they're hoping somebody else will do the job for them. Um, I don't know. I think maybe that uh, the government tolerates a certain level of dissent almost as a, a, a fallback position. In other words, you never quite throw away the small pack pox virus, you keep it in case you might need it. I can imagine the culture crisis getting so crazy that uh, the people at the top will have to turn to their cohorts and say, call in McKenna and his friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. You know, uh, Robert Anton Wilson said a funny thing years ago. He said... Uh, you should view the world as a conspiracy uh, run by a very closely knit group of nearly omnipotent people. And you should think of those people as yourself and your friends. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, you have a loser's scenario. And who wants to have a loser's scenario? An enslaved scenario. Yes. So I believe in pronoia, which is the opposite of paranoia. I, I believe the reality is a marvelous uh, joke staged for my edification and amusement, <laughs> and that everybody's working very hard to make me happy. Uh, <laughs> All right, well, let me uh, bring on one of these uh, happy folks right now. Uh, Wildcard Line, you're on the air with uh, the ruler of the world, Terrence McKenna. Oh, great. This is John in Las Vegas. Right? In Las Vegas. You're going to also have to yell at us. We're oh, I'm sorry. That's uh, all right. John in Las Vegas listening on Hot Talk 105.1 FM. Yes, sir. Okay, I'd like to recount briefly what I think are mysterious <clears throat> seasons of events that have uh, recently occurred and get your comments, if I could. Uh, I got a book that has uh, some excuse me, sacred geometry in it. Yes. And I started started fooling around with some of the shapes, and then I had a dream that ended with me standing next to the building in midtown Manhattan where the ball drops on New Year's Eve, yes. and there were a group of short, wide, dark beings <coughs> excuse me, wearing the same color blue that you have on <coughs> art in your commercial. Oh. Okay, here's the weird part. I went to the library and got a textbook about geometry. Yes. And on page 21, um, it's uh, lesson four, definitions. Decide which of the following statements are good definitions of the italicized words by determining whether or not their converses are true. If it's New Year's Day, then it's January 1. That's an example. And then the answer is a good definition because if, it is, if it's January 1st, 1st, it's New Year's Day. And then right next to it, the following statement is a definition of extraterrestrial creature. An extraterrestrial creature is a being from a place other than the Earth. And then they have, like, the converse, inverse, and contrapositive of the statement. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, the question is, you know, <laughs> in the dream, the... Uh, whatever they were beings were standing next to uh i think what's this what could be described as um, the symbol of new year's eve uh, which is you know where the ball drops on new year's right. eve they were standing right next to that and then in this book these two references are side by side new year's day and extraterrestrial creature 
And I'm thinking that maybe there's um, some meaning there that I'm not well, maybe I'll there is. Let's get your input. And, yeah, let, let me ask Terence about it. Uh, Terence, it brings us back to the geometric beings or um, uh, sentient beings, I guess, that that you experience with the MT. And I, I, you know, there's an interesting question for you, and it is that I interview a lot of uh, near-death experiencers. I interview a lot of people like Gordon Michael Scallion, uh, who have had some sort of physical trauma to their uh, selves and uh, inevitably near-death experiences, uh, physical trauma followed by psychic um, ability. All of these people, Terrence, talk to me about having seen geometric patterns and shapes that brought them an understanding they never had before. I know it sounds weird, but it, believe me, it's common. And isn't there possibly a common thread to your experience with DMT? Yes. I mean, these journeys into these higher places, wherever they are, seem to demand uh, mathematical metaphors. And, you know, people with no previous association with mathematics are driven uh, to mathematical metaphors. Uh, William Blake, the English poet, talked about the spiral of necessity. And if you remember in the 10th book of Plato's Republic, there's this amazing passage um, called The Myth of Ur, E-R, where this guy Ur, who is a soldier, dies or he's killed in battle and he lies on the battlefield eight days dead. And then he revives magically and he comes back and he tells this story of what he saw in the underworld and it is the most puzzling and amazing passage in the whole classical literature he talks about the spindle of necessity and he details the ratios of these various gears within gears um, yeah let me say about the caller and his dream the way I interpret much of what you're the material you deal with art, the weird experiences and in the ideas people generate out of it and right, real quick, public right. attention to all that is that uh, uh, something is trying to be told. The universe is trying to reach us. All right, all right, we'll pick up on this. We're at the bottom of the hour and I've got a break here. Clock says I've got a break, so I've got a break. We'll be right back. All right, uh, once again, here is uh, Terrence McKenna. Do you remember Michael Dukakis, Terrence? Uh, yes, didn't he run for something? Yeah, he, he ran uh, uh, for the presidency, and uh, he was a fellow that uh, took the uh, very unfortunate uh, uh, video of uh, uh, himself in a tank bobbing up and down, trying, oh, yeah. trying, to, trying to prove that he had uh, military uh, uh, sympathies and so forth and so on, and he looked silly. You remember that? Yeah. Okay, well, in the debates, Michael Dukakis was absolutely floored uh, when somebody asked him, uh, they, they were talking about debating the death penalty or something, and somebody asked, well, what if somebody killed your wife? And instead of saying angry, uh, instead of getting angry and saying, why, well, I'd kill this son of a bitch, you know, or whatever else people expected him to say, he was very moderate, and he was perceived to have lost the debate. So I have a Michael Dukakis-like question for you. Okay. And it comes by a faxer. Dear Art, 
uh, you and uh, uh, Ms. McKenna were talking about how, how hung up on sex we are and how we should be more like France, where they're more open-minded about sex. One thing that is always brought up is how the president of France has a mistress, and it's no big deal because the French are so open-minded. Have you ever noticed how uh, they're open-minded when it comes to men having a mistress, but I don't think that men are that open-minded when it comes to their own wife. Now, I don't think you'd be so open-minded uh, if it was your wife that the president of the U.S. put the make on. Uh, what do you say, Terrence? Uh, well, I'm single, fortunately. <laughs> However, let me try to carry myself into this. Uh, if uh, the president of the United States, if I were married and the president of the United States put a make on my wife, okay. then I suppose, like Hillary, I would have a ticket to ride. <laughs> but how about the rest of us? <laughs> yeah, and my point being, it's a personal matter for these people to work out. Uh, as long as it doesn't uh, uh, affect the functioning of government, I think it's a trivialization. People are, I mean, I'm amazed that it is so true that people will always be people, no matter wherever and however they are, that uh, this sort of thing goes on. But on the other hand, when you read about the, the Harding presidency, uh, it was pretty racy stuff. And when you get back to the late Roman emperors, we haven't even got traction yet, Art. <laughs> haven't even got traction East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Terrence McKenna. Hello, where are you, please? West Haven, Connecticut. All right, fire away. All right, Terrence, uh... Well, we need, uh, 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 we don't need lie detectors, we need truth detectors. Why I have do a we state... need crap detectors? <laughs> what? <laughs> Perhaps we need BS detectors. I have a statement on transplanetary truth and universal, um, stalemates. But first I want to digress with Timothy Leary's idea about intelligence squared. Have you heard of that idea? That observation? Sure. Pardon me? Now, you've got to be careful here because we've got a delay because of the system we're using. So it's like you've got to ask the question and then pause and listen to the answer. And then, and then when you, the answer is complete, speak again, caller. Uh, ask the, your question again. Uh, well, I have a statement and a question. The question, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, I, just, I, I want to comment on Timothy Leary's observation about intelligence squared and how it's a two-edged sword as regards psychedelic substances. And and what point do you want to make about that? Well, say if you, if you take 120 IQ as being 1, and a 60 IQ as being 0.5, and a uh, 240 IQ as being 2, you not only square the intelligences, but you square the difference of the intelligences as well. So if, you're, so if you are four times as intelligent as somebody else, and you take a substance, you could become 16 times as intelligent as that person, and that person would actually become stupider, and you would become much smarter. All right, well, let's hold it there. Well, here, here's a, here's a slightly smoother metaphor for all this. As the sphere of knowledge expands, the surface area of ignorance necessarily grows larger. <laughs> you can't do anything about that. All right. Um, very well said. West of the Rockies, you're on there with Terrence McKenna in the wilds of Hawaii. Hello? Hello there. Where are you? I'm in Salt Lake. Salt Lake City. All right. 
Turn your radio off and ask your question, sir. Go ahead. Yes, I wanted to ask Terrence what he thinks about the concept of a linear time and why people insist on all times are the same when actuality time can be cut up however it wishes to be. All right, the subject of time. Let us talk about that a little bit. Um, what would you say, uh, Terrence, of the nature of time? I was talking to a physicist the other day who suggested that um, time is um, absolutely our invention and that once there was nothing, then there was one thing, and uh, then finally there were two things. And when two things existed, then we had time because we could measure how one moved against the other, how far away one was from the other. Until that moment, there was no such thing as time. And really, there is no such thing as time today except as we as we measure it. Well, this there is no such thing as is a, a, a philosophical position. Uh, I think it's true that time is uh, a cultural artifact. Uh, in other words, c cultures create different kinds of time which they then perceive as the only kind of time there is. Linear time has arisen slowly over the past thousand years as a consequence of uh, uh, the introduction of print and accurate timekeeping in the West and just a whole bunch of cultural accidents lead us to believe that there is, you know, this unrealized future and knife-edged present and then a world of memory that we call the past. Mm. Uh, we don't notice that we all have different pasts and that we all go to different futures. Um, as far as whether time in the physical sense is real, uh, this is a question probably I'm not professionally uh, capable of answering. It seems to me, though, that the second law of thermodynamics uh, imparts a kind of an arrow to time. And also, this new force that we mentioned earlier, Art, this uh, anti-gravitational force that gets stronger over time seems then to give an arrow to time. I mean, if this force gets stronger as time passes, then time is a real thing, not only to human beings, but to this force. So we have to look at that. Uh, I believe that time is in a uh, fluctuating uh, kind of topology and that where our models of time have failed is that we too enthusiastically embraced probability theory. Probability theory makes the error of believing that you take a series of measurements, then you average them, then you divide by the number of measurements you took, and that this is somehow tells you something useful. That, in other words, uh, when the measurements were taken is not important. The time is smeared out by probability theory. And I think, you know, that time is, uh, that probability is fluctuating on many scales. The first thing you learn when you study probability in, in academic situation is that chance has no memory. In other words, that the flip of a coin is not affected by the flips that preceded it. But no, no gambler believes that. Uh, experience shows that if, 
if there's a run toward heads or tails, you should bet that way. Well, I think this indicates a universal tendency toward a fluctuation of probability that is how the universe actually sculpts itself into higher and higher form. This is not the theory of evolution that Darwin came up with, which sort of pushes from behind. It's a theory that there is a kind of attractor in the future that is actually shaping processes, uh, pulling us, as it were, like iron filings uh, in the presence of a magnetic field. But this is a field that acts through history. Well, you can even observe, Terence, a, a macrocosm of that in, in your own life. In other words, uh, if, 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 if the coin coming up heads means good stuff happens to you, uh, we go through these cycles where... Uh, nothing, literally, almost nothing bad can happen. Everything is good. Everything's coming up heads. And then we run smack into a wall and tails will start to come up. But it, it doesn't seem, uh, it, it does seem to run in, uh, in, in those, um, uh, those exact, uh, sequences that you talked about. Uh, and, and I can't understand why. When well, you put your finger on it when you said we see this pattern even macrocosmically in our own lives. Yeah. We see it in history. We see it in the planet's history. Yep. We see it at every scale where we define time. And I maintain right down to uh, a few minutes or a few milliseconds. And that in a way, we have to switch lenses when we look at nature and probability theory carries you from complete ignorance to a blurry vision of how nature works then if you will turn your attention toward time and actually propound a more complex model than simply that time is invariant then the rest of nature will snap into being the part we can't understand yet societies processes uh, this is where our our thing is not yet uh, ready for prime time, scientific <laughs> explanation. When you uh, do this new drug that you have been so enthusiastic about uh, recently, uh, what is, even though in real time or linear time, it's only a few minutes, what is your perception during that trip uh, on DMT? Well, concerning time, you mean? Yeah. In other words, are, uh, you, are you are you aware that you have only been gone for X number of minutes, or is it an there experience? There is an elongation of time, ah. not a spectacular elongation of time. But what is interesting is uh, the sense that you only do it once, and that no matter how many times you do it, it never repeats. You just go back to the same one again. It, there, it's bizarre. Uh, and so if you did it early in life, I first smoked DMT when I was about 20, mm. I always seem then to be 20 again uh, going into it. The other thing about DMT that suggests a time aspect is you feel like you have fetal body proportions, that your head is very large compared to your torso. Mm. Um and now that you've gotten me onto this subject, I'm recalling a DMT trip years ago where I did it with two women who sat across from me. And uh, at one point in the experience, I opened my eyes. And 
these were both women probably 25 years old, and one of them was uh, running backward in time, changing into a 15-year-old, a 12-year-old, an 8-year-old, and the other one, her hair was turning white, her gums were retracting, her wow. skin was... It was... Wow. You know, talk about uh, amazement. And I didn't say anything at the time because I didn't know whether it was would be interpreted personally. My personal feeling was it wasn't a statement about the personalities of either of these women or how I felt about them, that I was actually seeing time run forward and backwards at the same time. It was a lesson to me out of the, the DMT place, but it was definitely a, a strong hit of a kind of time we're not accustomed to. Oh, that's a remarkable story. Uh, that really, I'm going to give that some serious thought over time in the linear world. First time caller line, you're on the air with Terrence McKenna. Hello, where are you please? I'm from uh, Silver City, New Mexico. Okay. And uh, Terrence uh, and Art, uh, good morning. And, uh, good morning. Uh, we spent some time together down in Katimako about five years ago at the uh, Entheogenic Botanical Conference. Uh, I was the clinical herbalist down there. And, yes, uh, that was a wonderful time in the rainforest of Catamaco. I'm glad you're still trucking. Still still working with the plants. And uh, I have two questions. One, I was uh, wondering if, uh, what, you, what, what do you feel about all of these mutating viruses and bacteria that seem to be manifesting all over the globe? And... Uh, the second question, which uh, uh, is kind of bizarre, I think in many respects that uh, to approach a lot of these viruses and bacteria with uh, remedies or cures, you know, being a clinical herbalist, I, I sometimes look at all different forms of medicine, um, hallucinogenic, uh, botanical medicine, homeopathic medicine. And recently I've been wondering if you knew of anything concerning uh, meteorites used as medicine, uh, specifically like the Murchison meteorite that fell in Australia in 1969. It contains many uh, organic molecules which are not found uh, on Earth. And uh, I'm wondering if you've ever, in your research or experience, have ever come across uh, meteorites being used as medicine, especially meteorites that contain uh, amino acids which are not Part of the one, 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 yes, one might also, though, uh, question whether some of the new and mutating viruses and bacteria are not being delivered by these healing meteorites. At any rate, uh, what it, it is a very good question, uh, Terrence. We have all of these new little bugs that are turning against us in increasing numbers with our ability to combat them uh, decreasing at about the same rate. Um, what's going on? Well, one thing that's going on is we're disturbing habitats that have never been disturbed uh, in the rainforest, in the warm tropics. I mean, that's what the Ebola thing is about, and that's what these aerosol leukemias uh, in New Guinea are about. We're going into places where human beings have never been and busting up the joint, and uh, nature is fighting back. Uh, it, this is very real and it's problematic. Also, you mentioned, Art, there is a, a, a 
minority but respectable opinion in the scientific community that believes that virus particles and uh, prions and things like this are being delivered to the Earth's surface from the extraterrestrial environment and that this is, uh, Plagues from Space, that book by Fred Hoyle, uh, was very interesting where he correlated numerous epidemics with the Earth passing through cometary veils and uh, and this sort of thing. So it wouldn't surprise me if the Earth's biota was being challenged and renewed by material from space. And I think that the inner solar system is becoming more dynamic and active. Uh, I think there's a lot of material moving around out there. This mm. is a nightmare to the scientific and military community. As a matter of fact, Terrence, they don't understand it. We have had objects coming down in Greenland over El Paso, uh, constantly over Colorado and Georgia and uh, the Bay Area. More things coming down with no good astronomical uh, explanation whatsoever. And uh, who knows what they're bringing with them. Yes, I, I think it's a problem. Uh, this little scare over the asteroid last week should bring people to awareness. I saw a page on the Internet that showed the number of known objects in the inner solar system uh, superimposed over the orbits of Mars, Venus, and Earth. And I'm telling you, it's a swarm. You look at that, and it looks like collision is inevitable, that anything else would be highly improbable, and then it's just a matter of uh, of the time scales. And meanwhile, as as we say, the biota of the Earth is constantly challenged by the introduction of extraterrestrial material, uh, both active and radioactive. It is all a matter of time, Terence. And all right, hold it uh, right where you are, and we'll be back to do one final hour. Terence McKenna is my guest. This is Coast to Coast. AM, I'm Art Bell. Don't touch that dial. Now again, here's Art. Terrence McKenna's here this morning in the early hours. Not so early for him in Hawaii, uh, up midnight hour or so. We'll get back to him in a moment. All right, here's what Dave says the president should have said in his State of the Union address. Members of Congress, people of America, I banged her. I banged her like a cheap gong. Which is not news, folks, because if you think Monica Lewinsky was the only skin flute player in my orchestra, you haven't been paying attention. The only babes in D.C. I have not tried to do are the First Lady, Reno, Albright, and Shalala. Mostly because they're a little older than I like, and they have legs that former Houston Oiler Earl would envy. Which isn't to say that I don't appreciate Hillary, I do. If not for the ice water coursing through her veins, I'd be pumping gas into farm equipment in Hope, Arkansas, and she'd be married to the president. So, let me set the record straight. I dodged the draft, hit FBI files, smoked dope, flipped whitewater property, set up a new Korean wing in the White House, fired the travel staff, paid hush money to Hubble, sold the Lincoln bedroom like an upscale Motel 6, and grabbed every ass that entered the Oval Office. Got it? Good. <laughs> Now, uh, if he'd said that or some variation of that at any point, uh, what do you think the reaction would have been, Terrence? Well, I caught the State of the Union address, and I thought it was some variation of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
on, I can't top that. Um, first time caller line, you're on the air with Terrence McKenna. Hello. Hello. Uh, I'm out here in Los Angeles. This is Jeff. Yeah. Uh, I'm having a problem with uh, a little bit of Terrence's, uh, uh, well, his, his, uh, trips with, uh, DMT. Uh, I'm near 50 right now, and, uh, I used to play around with DMT in a crystallized form back in when I was around 20 years old. And, uh, he says that you, you now I, I want to get this correct. Are you saying, Terrence, that, that you, you keep having the same trip over and over? Because I didn't find that to be true at all. No, I think what I'm saying is that it takes me to the same place over and over. In other words, it's got a very unique character. It's not like anything else, and it keeps doing, it keeps being what it is each time I try it. Well, I, I personally found myself that uh, it didn't take me to the same place. Uh, in fact, it, uh, the only way that it even uh, took me at all uh, to the same, uh, even calling it the same place, was it was just in hallucinations, or I wouldn't even call them hallucinations, really. I'd call them more distortions. And uh, I find that uh, with most psychedelics, like LSD, for instance, uh, that in all the trips I've taken and uh, all the experiences I've t uh, taken with other people, that I've never personally had a bad trip, but I find that more people that have bad trips with, with LSD and, and uh, psychedelics are people that are not stable. Uh, yes, and, I agree. I said earlier that psychedelics dissolve boundaries. Uh, that's good for most of us. We're pretty tightly boundary-defined, but some people are not. Some people are having an uphill battle just to keep the boundaries in place. And those people are definitely not candidates for psychedelics. I don't think psychedelics are something for everybody. I view it as a, a kind of a psychic and athletic calling, like ocean kayaking or rock climbing. You need to know your tools. You need to know the territory. You've got a buddy system in place. And you're physically trained and mentally prepared. That's how I see it. It's not. That's why I railed against the concept recreational drugs, which I just think is some kind of weird way to sell speed in nightclubs or something. Uh, <laughs> All right, um, Terrence. Uh, here we go again. I'm, I'm trying to devote this to the listeners because I could ask you a million questions. Wildcard line. You're on the air with Terrence McKenna in Hawaii. Where are you, please? Hello, Art and Terrence. I'm in Bob in uh, KES country, Beaverton. Uh, Oregon, okay. Right. Uh, all these things you've been talking about tonight, uh, I'd like to put them in uh, the same pot and stir them up and see what comes out. Uh, computers as sentient beings, when you look at the depths of our perceptions, for instance, I've been studying uh, people's ability to uh, perceive signals from the earth, and then look at uh, reverse speech with David Zod Oates and uh, his uh, findings that uh, we are very much uh, uh, sexual beings in the uh, in the underlying areas where your speech comes out. Uh, how are you going to put those together, all that processing, all that uh, uh, perceptual abilities, and then uh, try to put that into a computer? Well, in a way, what I think is going on is that the concept of the collective unconscious, which was uh, enunciated by Carl Jung in the early decades of the 20th century, he and Freud basically discovered that the mind had a flip side that could only express itself in dreams and that was seemed very primitive and aggressive and uh, a dark landscape. And 
they tried to cut some lines through it and map it. Uh, psychedelics also threw light on that landscape. Now, if we're going to become a planetary being, we can't have the luxury of an unconscious mind. That's something that goes along with the monkey stage of human culture. And so comes then the prosthesis of technology, that all our memories and uh, all our sciences and our projective planning abilities can be downloaded into um, a technological artifact, which is almost our child or our friend or our companion in the historical adventure. And this is all being done by very switched-on people who learned the rules of the unconscious uh, in the 60s, largely from psychedelics, and are now in a position to technologically implement a cultural artifact, the Internet, that actually casts light into the unconscious. I mean, I believe in information, and I believe if people can uh, find out, you know, know the truth, and it will set you free. Well, the Internet is opening up the avenues to truth to more people faster than in, at any time in history, and this was not the plan of the managerial class or the nation-state or the corporate elites. It's a, a, a side to the technologies that they put in place that they never foresaw, as is always the case. Actually, the Internet, of course, uh, the genesis of it was with our very own government. Uh, do you think that they, in effect, birthed, birthed their own worst enemy? In a sense, they created their successor. They transcended themselves. When they built a network that could withstand thermonuclear exchanges, they built a, a multi-centered, dynamic organism that lived on information. And it quickly spread to the universities, the think tanks, and beyond that to the corporations, and beyond that to you and me. And now it's so embedded in the very life of global capitalism that the nation state has just been told to keep its mitts off. Uh, this whole Telecommunications Decency Act uh, scenario showed that when the chips are down, uh, the world corporate state is very able to assert its control and ownership of the Internet and how it's used. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Terrence McKenna. Hi, where are you, please? Hi, this is Byron in Shreveport, Louisiana. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, Art. I love this show. I just discovered you this month. I didn't know such a good thing was on the air late at night. Well, it's, it's uh, as I tell people, it is different. It certainly is, sir, especially for those of us who work nights, and then on our nights off we can't sleep. So this is wonderful. Well, here's a question I have for Terrence. Um, this has been happening to me for some time. I, I, when I heard Terrence speak of the universe reaching out to us, or trying to, it, it brought home to me some things that are happening. <clears throat> when I was getting my first degree, I took a philosophy course, and I asked my professor, I said, Sir, do you ever have patterns come to you? And he said, What do you mean patterns? I said, Well, I'll be going along doing my, my business, and on the news or in a magazine or a book, a word, an unusual word, jumps out at me. And I'll go, okay, <clears throat> I'm a word hound, so I kind of take note. 
Then, later that same day or the next day, the very same unusual word jumps out at me again. And then the next day, in, in a very different place, the very same unusual, heretofore, rarely or if maybe never seen word pops up again. So I thought, well, maybe something is trying to tell me something. <laughs> so I would take note of that word. Then I go along for months, and then it happens again with another word. I didn't know what to call this phenomenon, so I just called it a pattern because it kept reappearing. But I wondered, if, you know, when Terrence mentioned the universe trying to reach out to us, Terrence, do you suppose that could be one form of some outer intelligence reaching in? or It may, it may not be that deep philosophically. I'll, I'll give you one answer. For example, if you go out and buy... Um, a new Chevy, a, a Nova car, all right? right. Uh, you, you, before, you will not have noticed Novas. Now, you will suddenly see Novas everywhere. <laughs> yes, sir, that's true. So it may be that, or it may be deeper. Uh, Terrence, what do you say? Well, it's funny, uh, again, to mention Jung. Um, he had this concept which he called synchronicity, which is uh, the apparent coincidence of a mental state with an event in the exterior world. And what I mean by that is you're walking along the street thinking about Mr. Fishman, to whom you owe money, and suddenly there's a fish right on the street in front of you. Uh, this is called a synchronicity. And Jung felt that there was a kind of a, what he called a causal connectedness and that this was how the unconscious attempted to communicate uh, by, by juxtaposing thoughts with exterior events that seem related to them in some magical way. And uh, if you're, you know, sometimes synchronicity is one or two a week and we just sort of notice it and pass on, but they can build and when we're going through spiritual crises or when we're intoxicated on psychedelic drugs, for example, these synchronicities can multiply until the whole uh, exterior world seems to be trying uh, to communicate something to you. And um, it's alarming to ordinary psychiatrists because they call it delusions of grandeur. Mm -hmm. The patient thinks the world is trying to communicate with him. But having been on the inside of this, I can tell you, it's very powerful, and a lot of Chinese philosophical thinking has been based on, on recognizing this synchrony, this resonance between mind and nature at critical times. And so as you see this fish reminding you of the man who owes you money, flopping on the ground, uh, gasping and dying out of the water, do you, do you take pleasure? Well, I had a dead fish in my image, so it wasn't an issue for me. It, it didn't flop. All right. No, it didn't flop. In fact, it was quite light. <laughs> <laughs> West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Terrence McKenna. Hello. Where are you, please? No, I'm from Sacramento, California. All right. You're going to have to yell at us from Sacramento. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, Terrence, I was just wondering, at your current standpoint relative to the great scheme of things, what would your answer be to the old question, what is the meaning of life? on uh, our stay here on Earth? Oh, wonderful question, uh, one that we started with yesterday. 
uh, you might ask it this way. What is um, the greatest question that humanity could have answered for itself? Well, you know, in classical philosophy, they said, here's what classical philosophy is about. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? These are the three questions. Everything arises from this. Each leads on to the other. Uh, I've tried to I've tried to look at the question, where did we come from, and have proposed theories about it. Uh, I've by looking into my body brain with drugs and meditation and just analytical thinking, I've tried to look at at who are we. And then the great unanswered question is, where are we going? You know, what is to be the destiny of the human race? Are we an episode in the biology of this planet? Or will we build an Eden strung along the Milky Way? And from there to yet grander and greater things, we don't know how much intelligence there is uh, in the universe, but we certainly know that something has broken out uh, on this planet in our species that is like nothing else in the order of nature. What if we are nothing more than uh, a virtual zip on the face of reality? Well, if by virtual you mean that we are inside some kind of uh, artificial simulacrum, that yes, this is yes, a yes, piece yes, of yes, software yes. being run, yes. uh, well, then the question is by who and to what end? I could pick up that. I, my life is so much like a story that I'm constantly asking the question, who writes this? Yeah, who writes this stuff? Who writes this stuff? I mean, who thought me up? <laughs> who thought Art Bell up and put us talking like this in front of 22 million people? That doesn't happen in reality. That kind of thing happens in art of a very finely honed sort. And so I want to know what is the medium and who is the artist and who's paying for this production. <laughs> First time caller line, uh, you're on the air with Terrence McKenna. Hello. Hello, Terrence. Hello, Art. Hi. Oh, you're weak, too. Boy, I have weak phone connections. Okay, yell at us, sir. Yell. Oh, that's better. Okay. Um, uh, first of all, um, I want to say that I had some DNT experiences. And I've had the privilege of doing them outside the jurisdiction of the United States. Louder, please. Yeah, louder. He okay. says he's had DMT experiences outside the jurisdiction of the U.S. Anyway, yes, anyway um, I've had very similar experiences to the kinds of things that, that you, Terrence, have been talking about. Also, um, when I, I did something else that brought me to a new space, and what I did is, is I had three grams of psilocybin mushrooms, and, um, and I did this in a ritual sort of way. I, I did a confession first to, to a friend to get things off my chest, and um, I sent out prayers. And I was a very, it was a very directed um, um, ritual. That all right, all right. Let, let me uh, then put that question to him. He, he said that uh, what he did, grams of psilocybin and so forth, he did in a very ritualistic way. Um, do you think that um, there would be anything to that, in effect, cleansing yourself before doing something like that? Well, certainly energy follows attention. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand this. Energy follows attention. And then, you know, while it's true these things are dramatically affecting the mind, they are physical drugs. 
and they are going into your body. So, uh, you know, not eating for four to six hours, uh, not having recently soaked up on Big Macs or a lot of antibiotics or junk food, you know. I mean, obvious, reasonable rules are in place. All right, uh, we're going to have to hold it right there. We're at the bottom of the hour, and we'll head into the final portion in a moment. Terrence McKenna, my guest this morning. I'm Art Bell. From the high desert in the middle of the night, this is Coast to Coast AM. And so is Terrence McKenna. And uh, that is an attitude, Terrence, of a programmer who does this embedded software thing and admits to being totally scripts that it's never going to be self-aware. That is, uh, I guess, one attitude. Is that um, uh, macro thinking uh, of, of one single programmer who is failing to embrace uh, what's actually really going on? Well, uh, while we were off uh, air, I was online and looking at the AI pages, and I would just recommend to someone with that attitude that they search words like super intelligence, artificial intelligence, and look at the stuff posted on the web. Uh, I work with a computer every day. I don't have the same experience as uh, the the person you quoted. I find the the evolution of software. Uh, I can't keep up with it. I, I don't feel any of us have written software that takes advantage of the hardware's capabilities. In other words, no one has tested uh, the edge of the hardware. The failure is in the software writing department. But if you look at uh, what people like Bruce Dermar at Digital Space are doing, uh, the singularity web pages, the artificial intelligence web pages, the transhuman uh oh, we're getting we're, we're getting a little break up here. Um, wouldn't the uh, the real evolution begin when nanotechnology uh, becomes a reality, and uh, these uh, these machines then begin to either replicate themselves or to write their own, in effect write their own software, taking leaps uh, beyond what what we can do? Because I think you're right. Well, that would be one revolution. Another, I think, that will come sooner is when everything is implants. When, you know, the equivalent of today's computer is something that you... Uh-oh. 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 ...to nervous system interfacing so that we don't feel it as a machine. We feel it as a, a capacity of our own mind. This will come. All right. Um, east of the Rockies, you're on the air. Good morning with Terrence McKenna. Where are you, please? Now, this is Bill in Wisconsin. Bill, you're going to have to yell at us. Go okay. ahead. How's that? Better. Um, Terrence, we were talking, you were talking a little bit about the fish on the sidewalk. Right. And I uh, have had experience with LSD. I was a part of an experiment in 1970s, mid-70s, and we were allowed to inject um, three bottles of Sandoz, uh, LSD, 100 micrograms each at the same time, so 300 micrograms IV. And uh, since that time, I've had experiences, oh, hundreds of experiences, similar to the fish on the sidewalk. Um, I'll give you just one quick one, and I want to take it one step further and ask you this question. Um, 
On the way to the motor vehicle department, uh, I borrowed $35 from my girlfriend to get my motorcycle back in the 70s. And I said, wouldn't it be something, you know, to see an interesting plate come up? Well, it came up UIO35. Uh, 
uh, just another belief system. Uh, all of this, you know, really does take us, I think, to uh, the, 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 the geometrical structures that you talk about. Yeah, when you look, I when you look that, at the self that what we're going to have to understand is that psychedelic experience and quantum mechanical theories actually come together. The, the brain is the perfect instrument for exploring these uh, microphysical low-energy states. And yoga and shamanism and psychedelics, this has been going on for a long time, not using metaphors drawn out of the evolution of modern science, but using equally powerful metaphors created in, in different contexts. But the big news is the future prosecution of science into new areas is going to involve using the brain as an instrument and giving up the idea of scientific objectivity as a naive, positivist notion. And let's just get down and explore being with all the means at our disposal, chief of which are pharmacological and chemical. And while you hang on, I suppose, um, tenuously, uh, however, strongly to this scientific uh, paradigm, you're not going anywhere, right? Right. We see what's held. One of the issues around drugs is that scientists don't study them from the inside because this would compromise their supposed academic objectivity. But by studying them from the outside, they end up knowing nothing about them. So you have a, a, an emperor's new clothes situation, and everybody in pharmacology knows this. The good pharmacologists simply take the drugs but never say so uh, in print. So in order, in order to um, be as public about it as you are, one must find a remote mountainside in Hawaii and um, uh, become a virtual or very nearly a, a hermit and uh, then speak out with uh, uh, some safety. Is that, uh, is that a fair assessment? Uh, that's, a, that's about it. By voluntarily becoming a physical hermit, I uh -huh. get to have a podium in cyberspace. <laughs> Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Terrence McKenna. Good morning. Oh, good morning. I'm Clyde from KHVH, Honolulu. Honolulu. Oh, boy, what a, what a route. Yeah. yeah, louder, please. Okay. Uh, Terrence, are you in the Big Island? Because the New Agers say the Big Island is like an energy vortex. You have Pele, the uh, volcano, and Pele, which is also a Hawaiian goddess. And then I was looking well, at the Well, I don't think you have to be a sensitive to perceive that the Big Island is an energy center. we got the world's largest volcano here. Uh, right in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, we we feel protected by Pele. Uh, she puts lots of mercury vapor into the air and keeps real estate cheap and tourists away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and then do you like being there? Because, uh, like, I was looking at the map. Uh, the Big Island is 180 degrees, almost exactly uh, the other side of the world from the pyramids of Giza which is another energy vortex. No, what interests me about the Big Island is that it's at 19 degrees 30 minutes north, which is the, the critical place to study the skies of Mexico. That, that means that the skies off my front porch are the same skies I see when I go to Palenque and Uxmal and all the Mayan sites. So I, I love that. 
All right. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Terrence McKenna. Where are you, please? Uh, that'd be J27 on your Minnesota state map, Art. <laughs> All right. And uh, I listened to you probably for the past year or so, and I wouldn't, uh, it's unbelievable how hard it is to get through, but I tried twice. and Here you are. And here I am. And also to Terrence. Um, I used to subscribe to High Times, and they had a pictorial um, back in the 70s of over 150 different varieties of um, uh, indica from Hawaii. Do you believe that to be true? Or? And also, I have another uh, question. It may have been true then. They fly hard out here and have driven the pot growers pretty far underground. I mean, there's definitely still... Primo Pakalolo, I mean, but it's not like it was in the roaring 70s. Yeah, so, but there are, uh, I used to live in Northern California, and I experienced uh, red hair and purple hair sensomalia, and it's, uh, it's, it's probably, is, you know, the Dom Periam of, of, you know, that region, in my experiences. And also I have one other uh, statement that between your two minds, I'm just wondering if, you know, this is, could be possible that uh, I had surgery, major surgery over a year and a half ago, and kind of saw it coming in that um, you know my I was slowing down and my life was coming to an end. And now after recovery, that I'm getting this feeling that other than just an act of kindness, which is possible, and I'm a nice individual, but I just just seem to be looking for my age. I look young, and I just keep to myself, and I'm kind to other people. But lately, over the past week to 10 days, people that I normally wouldn't have contact with are smiling at me, and and it just seems to me like I have this image of the look of death. But it's channeling through these people, and you know they recognize me in that certain way. I'm just wondering if that's if that's as crazy or if that could be true. No, you're going to die. Well, that's okay. <laughs> I don't know, Terrence. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, intuition is intuition, and noise is noise, and it's a it's a very hard call and a very important one. So what you do is you cook it in your mind, and then you 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 go with what feels right. All right, West of the Rockies, uh, you're on the air with the Answer Man, Terrence McKenna. Hi, Terrence. This is Phil. Listening to uh, 610-K-O-N-A. I heard you last 23rd May last year, and do you have an information letter available to those without computers? Uh, do you have anything new published in the last year, and have you had any new revelations in the past year? All right. Well, a lot of past year there. Um, do you uh, do you share through any other medium uh, other than the uh, the internet, uh, Terrence? The Internet is pretty much it. I have books, and I'm interviewed a lot, and I've been interviewed in the past year in uh, uh, Magical Blend, and then, but usually in small rave and music magazines seem interested in me. I, the Internet is the place where there is endless amounts of my material, much of it put up not by me, and thank you to those people who do that, uh, I think that's probably the place to get the most information about me. I was thinking the other night about DMT, and I thought of a phrase I've used to describe it, Arabian hyperspace. And I searched on the Internet, and it's 
spat out my own text at me. It was a very weird moment. Yeah, it must, it must have been. It, it, it really, was. It, it was really must have been. weird. There's uh, plenty of Terrence McKenna on the net. Well, you know, here you mentioned hyperspace. You mentioned 19 degrees. Uh, not, not Mind you, not 19.5, but 19. Have you ever listened to Richard Hoagland and his discussions about uh, hyperdimensional physics? Oh, yeah. The problem is, Art, I knew these guys too soon. I knew them so long ago that I, I know how squirrely they truly are. <laughs> <laughs> I've played poker with them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. One last, I think we're almost out of time. Wildcard line, you're on the air with Terrence McKenna. Where are you, please? Aloha, Art. I'm in Captain Cook. I'm actually about a 1,000 feet north of uh, 19.5. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I wanted to ask uh, Terrence a couple of questions. One was about uh, cannabis and uh, ibogaine, and the other was I, I wanted to thank him for uh, at one time he was uh, going to be a witness in my trial for the religious use of cannabis here in Kona. And, uh, yeah, what and, is your question about cannabis and ibogaine? <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm interested in the fact, or what do you think of the fact that they're the only two plants that are illegal to grow in the United States, and ibogaine being a addiction interrupter? Uh, well, ibogaine was made, uh, was put in that Schedule 1 in that week of hysteria back in the 1960s, was put in, including the Compounds later found not even to be active in human beings. Uh, I think it is a tremendous detriment and an indictment of the scientific establishment that it doesn't fight back more against medic against government. You know, in the Middle Ages, medical students would steal corpses off the gallows in order to get bodies to do dissections, which the church had forbidden. And where is the courage of science now, big science even, that it allows government to set the agenda in the area of exploring uh, substances which affect the human mind? The answer, the answer, Terrence, is they're chicken. Now, uh, we're out of time. I want to ask you one quick question. One of our network employees just came back from Hawaii, Honolulu, and uh, elsewhere, and said the island is like a crispy critter. It's so dry. It's, uh, they, 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 uh, she had never seen Hawaii in the state it's in right now. Is that true? Uh, yeah, the way the El Nino works is uh, these huge storms in California, that's all our winter water. And uh, we, until a week ago, had not seen a drop since before Halloween. Wow. Now we're getting weak rain occasionally, but people who didn't... Uh, a store water are in trouble, and the coffee people are screaming. Boy, that's almost impossible to imagine, uh, recalling the Hawaii that I saw when I was living on Maui. Listen, that's it. We've gone through all the hours, uh, Terrence, and once again, you have been ever so gracious. What a wonderful interview, and aside from a few interruptions, your new phone system in the wilderness is working just spiffy. Terrence, got to say goodnight. It's a great pleasure to talk to you, Art. Good take, luck. Take care. And, and when I come, I, I want to see you, Terrence, all right? we got a guest room for you. <laughs> you, okay. take, you. You take care, my friend. That's Terrence McKenna, folks. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. 
So, uh, now maybe you have a little better idea of how some of Terrence's more outrageous thoughts became so widespread. In these uh, late-night conversations with Art Bell, Terrence was reaching an audience of over 2 million people, all of whom were of such a nature that they liked to stay up through the night listening to Art Bell talking about UFOs, aliens, and DMT. Uh, it was really an interesting audience. And uh, I think you have to hand it to Terrence. While I got a little lost when listening to some of the questions that he was being asked, Terrence just took them all in stride and uh, seemed to do his best to answer them in a somewhat logical manner. Personally, uh, <laughs> I would have had to pass on some of those questions. Of course, uh, by 1998, I assumed that Terrence had probably heard more than his share of off-the-wall questions, so he never seemed to react negatively when somebody asked a question that, well, maybe should have stayed in that person's mind a little bit longer so as to become perhaps better formed and clear enough for a guy like me to understand. And on that topic, uh, did you notice what a masterful job Art Bell did by taking an offbeat question and restating it in a way that Terrence could address it intelligently? Art was really a great radio host. Well, it's time for me to go today, but tomorrow night at 6.30 Pacific Time, I'll once again open the doors of the salon for a live online session. And as I said earlier, tomorrow's guest in the salon will be Dr. Bruce Damer, who has been a cornerstone of these podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon ever since they began. While we may not reach a couple of million people tomorrow night, like the old Art Bell show once did, Nonetheless, I'm sure that our conversation will be every bit as diverse and interesting as it was in the program that we just listened to. I hope to see you there. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.